Let's pray, and then we will hear what the Lord has for each of us today. Father, 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 um, I want to come and, and ask for your spirit right now to settle my heart and mind, that I would be not only, um, Lord, able to hear spiritually, but, of course, able to speak only your truths. And as we come together today to glean what you would have us to understand from your word, that you'd make each of us be able to put distraction away, concerns, Lord, laying them at your throne, and our hearts and minds all the more prepared for what we really believe is why we've come today, which is to experience you, hear you, uh, sit at your feet, that we might all the more grow into your image and be more what you desire us to be. We're all at different places, and yet we've all come to this place. By the power of your Spirit, we want to hear what you would say to us. So allow us to do that for your, your, your kingdom, your name's sake, and Lord, our benefit in being more transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are uh, finishing up the book today. As funny as we read it, we're actually kind of concluding this book historically as well. As we see what Paul is teaching the Thessalonians, it is so much, uh, so much relevance of it today for what we're going through, right? And in fact, at the end of chapter four last week, Pastor Steve, you, you know, touched on the idea of, as the scripture just did, the truths of the rapture of the church or the catching up. The is it, it says that we're caught up, you know, in the clouds. Together to meet there our Lord, to be with him forever, along, of course, with the brothers and sisters of the faith that have gone before us. And he, you know, he also touched on that. We don't get there before them. Of course, they've died in Christ and they're already there. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so they've already gone ahead and they'll come back. And as that trumpet blows, as we are then called up, snatched away we will find ourselves there with the Lord. So in just touching on that, on, the, on those verses to contextually move us right into uh, chapter 5, which of course it is. It's, remember, this was written as a letter. We're the ones that added chapter and verse. And so let's just pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4, and we're just going to read through it and then just get right into kind of uh, chapter 5. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And that literally means that have died, right? Lest any of you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring him those who sleep in, in Jesus. For as we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's that word reptuus in the, in the Latin together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Keep it up there. Keep, keep it before your, in, in your forefront of your mind. Christians, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is coming any second, and we're out, right? Now, I, I point it out that way because we live in a world now that, of course, mocks this. It makes fun of this. It has sitcoms. It has movies. You know, uh, they have songs about it and, and love to portray us as being absolute idiots that would believe such a thing. In fact, I remember when I uh, first met my uh, going-to-be future brother-in-law, who is now my brother-in-law and, and been that for over 25 years, he just said, you, you know, you Christians, it's just like you're, you're so into this like escapism thing. I make escapism. He goes, yeah, you really think like God's going to come and like take you out of here? And I'm like, yeah. And he's actually going to come take us out and he's going to come back and reestablish his kingdom on earth. Well, 
why would he do that? And, and it's like, well, because he wants to deal with sin and do away with all sickness, pain, suffering, and death, and have us live in a kingdom that he actually created us to have in the first place until Adam sinned. Oh, okay. Anyway, he's a believer today and uh, came to the realization of truth in the hope that Paul is writing about that he's saying, look, encourage each other in this thing because it's going to happen. Every promise that God's ever laid down has come to pass. Those yet that have come to pass, then why should we think that there would be any reason they wouldn't pass? They will, right? And so we have this assurance And in fact, we have scripture that let us know that this assurance is going to be mocked. And and let me just read before we go on from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 10. This is Peter now also backing up this same idea when he says, know this first. This is one of the first things we're supposed to know, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now again, Peter now backing up Paul's words that this is all coming and that in fact, It's the last days. They're thinking this back then. How much more are we in the last days now? Right? And he says, scoffers are going to come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his, capital H, coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the out of the water in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by that same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men but Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. They were saying it back then. It is still true today. The day of the Lord will come, and this earth will will wrap itself up. Well, will be toasted and done away with, right? But everything that is the Lord's will, of course, go on eternally, and that everything includes us, those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't see any scriptural prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for this to happen. Like, I don't see, we're not waiting for anything. This is going to take place. And so, just as you might expect, as Paul has just given this, you know, this assurance of what's going to happen and, you know, how it's going to happen, well, the next question on everybody's mind would be, Paul, when is this going to happen? And so he touches on that as he goes in now to chapter 5. And, and, and of course, just like Paul does in so much of his writings, is he's going to give us this prophetic assurance, back it up with what God has said and done, and then he's going to go into practical application for us as now what are we supposed to be doing. So this is basically how he's going to tie up this letter. And so... Um, We gain a lot from that. So he continues now, verse 1 of chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So you see he and Peter just backing up the same truths. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, 
are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So again there, he wants these words to be comforting to us. Jesus is coming back any second. This should not be a concern. This should be an absolute hope and in fact an excitement to us. And we should find it really comforting, right? Now, obviously he had taught them pretty well. Remember, Paul established this church back in in Acts uh, 17 in like a three-week period. He was in established it, taught him up, moved him out. Well, he moved out, you know. But he must have taught him pretty well because he's actually starts out by saying, now concerning these times and see, then, you know, I don't need to reteach you this stuff. You already know this stuff. So he must have really felt like he, he's given them this information already. And, but, you know, what he does do, and, and of course, and, and touch on is the fact that they'd be able to recognize the season. Like they'd be able to, to tell when it was when it was kind of going down. Because it's going to come as a thief in the night. Nobody's going to know. They were watching for it. In fact, he started the book out back in chapter 1, verse 10, and saying that they were waiting for the Son from heaven, to whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Another assurance that... What is going to come is sudden destruction upon them, and them is the world, those that do not believe. We are spared from. This is not our destiny. We, in fact, have the hope of salvation. And that's what he says that you know, we should be putting on like a helmet all the time. We have hope of salvation. I'm not, I'm not hoping I make it through the wrath of God. And please be assured, that's what he's talking about here, right? Now, let me just clarify a couple of things, and we're not going to spend a whole study you know, talking about that, because I'd rather spend the, the, the study talking about what we should be doing as we're waiting for this thief in the night kind of to, to come and, and begin it all, right? But he's talking about that in that day there will be peace and safety, and then the day of the Lord comes. Well, wait a minute. I thought the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Well, if you can know it, then how do you know? Well, the world, to the world, it's going to come as the thief in the night. But we are not in darkness. We are not like sons of night. We are sons of day, sons of light. And he means daughters too, girls, right? He's just speaking, you know, in the sense of humankind. That we, we know when this is supposed to take place. We, 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 can, we can know when those times and seasons are getting close. Now, again, no man knows the hour of the day. Not even Jesus did when he was here. He removed himself from that information and yet said that you should be able to recognize it. You know, you, you should understand that when Israel becomes a nation, when that olive tree is, is bearing fruit, is, is got leaves all over it, it's like, wow, like that's getting close. And, and sure enough, we saw that, right, back in, in the 40s when Israel became a nation again. So I, th- I think one thing that always stumbled me about this, uh, this idea of the day of the Lord is you... You know, we, we say, how, how's the day going so far? Well, it's a little windy and cold out there. Well, this is not talking about a 24-hour day. It's talking about a, a time-spanned day. And we get it from the book of Daniel in chapter 9. And it's that same kind of idea where Daniel's talking about a week, but not a week of seven days. He's talking about a week of seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Israel got to the, the 69th week of years in what the Lord was doing, and then... It stopped because Jesus was stopped. The Messiah was cut off. And now that last week, that 70th week, starts again when Jesus comes back and takes his bride, takes his church out of the way. Now, again, the, the, the book, that, that's, that's the rapture that we you know, heard about last week, this taking out, right? And that kind of kicks off this time period of the last month or this last seven years of one week, which then is also referred to as the tribulation period. At the midway point, the three-and-a-half-year point of that seven years, there's going to be great destruction that starts to be unleashed, which is God's 
wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, right? And that's known as the Great Tribulation. And in fact, Scripture says that if time wasn't even shortened in that day, if, if God wasn't going to wrap this up soon, nobody would make it through because this is a time of God's wrath upon the world. See, that's where, again, man kind of confuses it, and, and they'll say, well, you guys are just escapists. Like, you think you're going to get out of here, and you're not going to have to go through all this? And, and it's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to have to go through this, because Paul tells us a couple of times that we're saved from the wrath to come. We are taken out of the way. Well, isn't that nice for you guys? It certainly is. And why is it nice for us? Because the wrath of God has already been taken for me upon his son Jesus on the cross. See, that's why if if you're looking for those terms of like pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, pre meaning before the tribulation period, mid meaning mid-term, three and a half years into it, or post meaning after, and I don't want to spend time getting into all the arguments for that, and the scriptures and how they twist and misalign them, Uh, to, To prove a point, what I'll just say is I look at God's character, his nature through of all scripture, and I say for him to make me suffer through his wrath when he's already put his wrath upon Jesus for me, who I now believe by faith and and through grace have received that covering and that that freedom, man, that's a pretty harsh daddy that makes me pay twice and not just makes me pay, but actually then made his son pay for me and now makes me pay even though his son has taken that. That's why if you're going to say, all right, this is what Steve is, I'm pre-tribulation, that I'm going to be taken out of here before the tribulation period. And so, sorry, but that's just how you're going to always hear my messages go because I don't see that a loving bridegroom is going to beat up his bride before he comes and takes her to the altar to marry her. I don't get it. That's not a pretty physical, earthly picture. It certainly is an even more ugly and horrific spiritual picture because of what my father has already allowed his son to go through for me. And so there's going to be a freedom. But at that three-and-a-half-year period... Great destruction is going to happen. Now, again, that rapture time, that removal, it's going to talk about that actually more in Second Thessalonians, but removal of the church, his Holy Spirit. Now, God doesn't, when, it's, when it talks about him removing the restrainer in Second Corinthians, or Second Thessalonians 2.17, it's not talking about the, um, God's going to remove his Holy Spirit God the Spirit is everywhere. He always is, always has been. But he is going to remove the restrainer, which is us, the Holy Spirit in us, because he will not pour his wrath upon even a, one believer. You know, that, that picture back when Lot was back in Sodom, and he was going to release his, his wrath upon that city. He said, not even if there's one, I'm going to do it. You know, so he had to get him out. But the idea that... Um, that he's going to come and take his church out. And then at that moment, the restraining force that we are in this world to restrain evil from going full-on blown. And I know we look at this world and we go, man, it it seems pretty full-on blown to me. No, it's nothing compared to what it will be when we are removed from it. And because of that chaos and and that horror that's going to immediately start to take place, that's going to allow what the book of Revelation so clearly starts teaching around chapter 6, right, is for a man to come in, another Messiah, another Messiah. Also, that's the word for anti-Christ. And so he's going to come, and he's going to come on a white horse, uh, which is to symbolize this this victorious leader. He's going to come with a bow, but he's not going to have any arrows, which means he will be a negotiator. He's going to bring a peace, as Daniel tells us, the prophet Daniel. He's going to be a, bring a peace to this world, a peace with Israel. And we all know the hotbed that that is over there and, and what we always hear goes on in the news and the constant unrest and, and, and you know turmoil that goes on around this little teeny spot of land that God said was his people's. 
And so, anyway, he's going to come and he's going he's to make this peace. But Daniel's revelation shares with us that it's a false peace. And so at that three and a half year mark, the Antichrist, who has looked like Mr. Wonderful, very charismatic guy and going to be able to do all this wonderful stuff. And the world, of course, is waiting for him and looking for him because what we need is a really good man to rule us, right? To make this all work. That's why we hate men that we don't think are going to make it work. And, and our, our politics are the way they are because everybody's just looking for that guy that really can make it work. Well, this guy's going to look like he can. And then at that three and a half year mark, he's going to step up to say, basically, I am really wonderful. In fact, I have really done this. And in fact, this world should worship me for that purpose. And rather than allowing the, the Jews to any more worship their God, who they would proclaim was doing this, he's going to walk into God's temple and say, it's really me, right? And so that's all part of what the book of Revelation reveals to us and what's going to happen. Now, we're not going to be here because we're caught up. We're up in the air with Jesus. We're the bride now come home and we're celebrating at the dinner table. So this is what is going to be happening for us. But you have to understand that as we would read this and we'd understand, well, okay, I'm not going to be here for it, so let's move on quickly. No, get this because this should steer us up and cause us to have an urgency about what we share and how we share and who we're sharing with. Those that we know aren't going to be taken. And again, we don't make the judgment of heaven or hell, but we can make a judgment as unto fruit and whether or not someone's in the family or not and have an urgency about the need for them to be. Because this is coming. This is going to happen, right? It's going to come as a, as a thief in the night. And all of a sudden, we're gone. The world's in chaos. Mr. Wonderful steps up. I just thought of Shark Tank for a minute. And, and, and Mr. Wonderful is going to look wonderful because he's actually going to bring this plan. This plan that will... You, you guys won't have to worry about terrorism anymore. No more jihad. No more kidnapping. No more... No more identity theft. No, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give everybody a number. Everybody's going to have a mark. And in fact, you got this mark. You won't be able to buy or sell without it. And and it's going to be great because there won't be any more drug cartels controlling things with billions of dollars. There won't be any gang activity because we're going to know where everybody is all the time and who everybody is because everybody's going to have a mark. And all of a sudden, everybody's going to feel real secure, right? So what a wonderful thing, except the scripture reveals to us that it is actually buying in then to the world's system and all those that receive that mark are doomed then to perish. There is no hope. There is no second chance. There is, well, I didn't know. I mean, I just had to go along with it. You know, I was kind of forced and no, they will have to make a stand to take or not take the mark. And by the way, this guy is going to set it up. It's going to be a wonderful thing. Now, consider, if you will, I mean, I'm an old guy, right? When I first got saved back in the 80s, I would hear about this thing coming like next year. And there was this one guy on, on you know, one of the Christian channels, TV channels, and he was always talking about the multicolored money that we were going to get. And it was going to be, you know, this new currency. And it was going to, that was the, like the, the real end of it all. And I was like, that was 30 some years ago. You know, it's like... I don't want to start mocking now because the reality of this, oh, I don't have it. I left it in my coat pocket. I carry with me all the time. You realize when I, when I was in Chicago, right, you know, and I stay with Miss Kathy, that, that little old nun from back in the day. And, but every morning I get up and I take a keyless car. I drive a keyless car to the train station where on my phone, I call up my parking app, plug in my number, and it automatically removes money from an account that I've already deposited money into that says that my car gets to park in this spot. I get up, I train platform, I get on the train, I then call up my train app, and I open it up to a ticket, which is this little, you know, gif of a train kind of moving through the streets of Chicago. And when the conductor by, comes by and he goes, ticket, I show him my, my phone, I touch it, it turns, the gift turns a different color, and he goes, thank you. Because that's just activated my ticket. Now, I'm almost down to school, and so I call up my Starbucks app. (laughs) 
And I can order grande caramel macchiato, and I can pay for it while I'm on the train so that when I get off and walk my two and a half blocks to the Starbucks, it's waiting in the mobile order little slot, which allows me to walk by, by all the old timers that are standing in line to grab my caramel macchiato to get to my classroom on time, which to get to, I have to take my my security pass that I've been given by the Art Institute, right? I slide it through the slot to get in the corridor that goes down to my classroom, which then I double dip to unlock that door so that my students alone only can enter that classroom. This is my life, and I'm an old guy. But I'm looking at this and seeing more and more dependency and upon an electronic world that removes me from having to have everything except, well, this device. What if I lose it? What if somebody steals it? Man, I'm struck. Wouldn't it be much nicer if somehow this thing was connected to me so wherever I went, it always went? That's the idea. And right now, in Sweden, there are companies that are injecting small chips into their employees' hands that are about the size of a grain of rice, And hopefully you've read on these things because the scripture rewards us today that we are supposed to be aware of these things. We are supposed to be watching this so that it stirs up in us not a fear, but an urgency of the truth of what we should know as God's children of light and walking in the day because this night is coming. Right? And it's already happening. And right now you can get this little implant so that when you show up for work in the morning, all you do is hold your hand on a scanner and you get into your security qualified area to be able to do your job. They know you're there. They know what time you got there. They know you leave. They know how your health is. They know everything about you because it's all in this little chip that is constantly charged by the little electrode neutron things that go on in your body all the time. The, the electronic stuff that we ought to automatically have. Anyway, fascinating stuff and sounds really wonderful. It is from the pit of hell, right? And yet the world is waiting for this to happen. So, like I said, don't want to get distracted by that, but they're going to buy into it. And then it says, and sudden destruction will come upon them. And that sudden destruction is not the destruction that we see now in the world. See, they look at it and they go, yeah, but stuff's always going on. There's hurricanes, there's tornadoes, there's wars everywhere. Man's always been destructive. No, no, no. This isn't satanic destruction. This isn't because Satan is the ruler of this world. He's... Adam turned it over to him, and he's been having a heyday ever since. Now, God is sovereign. God allows. God lets things be used that then he can turn around, and what Satan means for evil, God can turn to good. But the fact of the matter is, this world is controlled by small God, G, Satan, right? And so this is where they are, and they're going to buy into it. And then the wrath of God, is going to be poured out upon it because he's going to cleanse this world from its sin, from those that have followed sins, Satan's ways. And it will be his judgment coming upon the world at this time. Not just more bad stuff. Like bad stuff happens. Well, yeah, it does. This is going to be God stuff happening. We won't be here to go through it. Now, all that to say that it... Again, we're going to escape. But you, sharp contrast there, brethren, in verse 4. You, born again, spirit-filled, abiding in Christ, able to hear and discern what's going on, right? You aren't children of darkness. You're not being deceived by this. And when it talks about darkness here and it's talking about, you know, being of, of, of the night, it's talking about being like spiritually blind, not being able to see clearly and to not being able to see at all, right? Or to be swayed by the nighttime, the evilness, the evil deed kind of of this world and how it's ruled. That's what it's talking about. And he's saying, you know, you've been, as the scripture says, transformed out of that world into the world of light, into his marvelous kingdom of light, it says in the scriptures. That's who you and I are. And so that's the responsibility we have to this revelation that he's given us, this illumination by his Holy Spirit, to be able 
to glean from his word of truth what's really going to happen and how it's going to happen. And even in a, sen- in a sense, when it's going to happen, don't know the hour of the day, it's coming as a thief in the knife, but I know it's coming. And, and I need to be responsible to that, right? And when it talks about us being sons of light and sons of day, well, what, what does that really mean? Well, when you're a son of something, and, and you know the scripture's all full of that. It's like you're son of Barjona. You know, it, it, bar, or, you know you're son of Jonah's Barjona, and that's what it means. And it meant that you were a representation of your father. You looked like him. You acted like him, right? Your DNA made you a son of. Well, our DNA is supposed to make us sons and daughters of light, sons and daughters of day, which means sons and daughters of truth. And we have a responsibility to that truth to be able to reveal it and and deliver it. And the way that we do that, two things that he asks for us to do, to watch and be sober. Now, the word watch there, it means to pay strict attention to these things. You know? I, you know, when I teach my class in Chicago, and I'm just old school, so I literally have a black board in my class, and, and even some of you that are teachers out there, you're like, <laughs> haven't you heard of a whiteboard? It's like, yes, I have heard of whiteboards, but I don't like them. I like chalk. Why? Because I can smear it and move it around, and that's what I do, and I demonstrate to my students. I don't expect them to know anything. I don't teach them. Now that, I don't expect them to. Now, when they, of course, some of them do, but I don't expect them to unless I show them, and when I show them, I expect them to be paying strict attention to me. Why? Because I guarantee them on the first day of class that if they will follow the principles that I will show them, they will, they will be better drawers. I guarantee it. Now, it's not a money-back guarantee. I always make that clear. Because it's like 4500 bucks or something like that to take my class now. It's like crazy. But I guarantee they will find themselves more successful in whatever area of art they're going to go to because what I teach is principles. Well, it's no different with our Christian walk. We should be living, teaching, being able to explain true God principles, precepts to people, both with our words and with our lives. And, man, having them watch us strictly, like strictly paying attention that they might get it and glean but that's what we're supposed to be doing for the word. So we don't check out on Sunday morning. We don't miss a couple of weeks because I'll catch it up later. Or, you know, well, I can always read it at home. Well, you can. And you should. And in fact, you should be studying and getting into this because we're responsible to be watching for this. We're also supposed to be sober. Now, sober is basically another word that means self-control. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, singular, and then out of love pours peace and patience and long-suffering. And that last one, which I love, that we get from love is self-control. It is a soberness, right? And, you know, if you want to equate it to the idea of drinking and being drunk, do it, because Paul certainly does, right? And what it basically means is, as a believer, I'm not supposed to be brought under the influence of anything in my thinking or way of looking at this life other than the holy scriptures of God and what he has revealed to me through his Holy Spirit in reading it and absorbing it and applying it to my life. That's what's supposed to influence me. Now, the world finds all kinds of things to influence it. And what's really disheartening to me is I see the church being influenced by the world and how they think and what they will allow or what they will rationalize or, you know, somehow compromise because, well, it's the 21st century and, you know, it was a couple thousand years ago this was written, so can we really trust that God did know what was going to be going on in 2019? We really can. And our lives are supposed to reflect that. So he tells us, man, be thinking soberly, like don't let anything else influence you. And for sure... Don't be asleep. Now, again, a a Christian life, a a believer's life, a follower of Christ's life, however you want to tag yourself, should never be characterized by sleepiness. And when it says sleepiness, again, it's not talking about you don't get to, you know, no no naps this afternoon. You know, you mud man people are all like, oh, my God, no, don't, please. (laughs) Don't take my one day. And it's like, no, you can go home and take a nap. That's not what it's talking about. 
It's talking about don't be indifferent. As a believer, a holder of truth, a revel, a, a, re, a revealed understander of God Almighty and how this all began and how this will all be tied up and end, man, I shouldn't be sleepy about that. I shouldn't be indifferent about that. I shouldn't be just like, well, yeah, you know, whatever. You know, somebody else will take care of it. No, I am supposed to be active, not inactive. Remember, Paul gives all those illustrations of being soldiers or being... Um, uh, athletes, you know, those are not inactive states of mind. Those are, in fact, are very active. They're, they're very aware of what they're supposed to be doing and training, in fact, for it. And that's how I'm supposed to be as a believer. You know, and, and man, there are so many believers that are... Um, I was just talking to somebody recently who hasn't been a pastor that long and, and what they're realizing when they minister and they talk to people within the congregation is he's like... Do you realize that people really like there's people that really don't read their Bible every day? I'm like, oh yeah. I know that's that's a hard one when you find that one out. That you actually talk to people like they are reading their Bible every day, and then you find out they're not. And how do you find out? Well, because they come in for counseling for their lights blowing up. And the first thing you would do is say, Are you in your word? And usually, well, you know, I am, but you know, it's not well. No, we need to be about our father's business. What does it mean to be in the Word? What does it mean to be in prayer daily? What does it mean to be serving God in the calling that he says he has given all of us? We've all been called to the ministry of reconciliation. And Peter shares that we have all been gifted. 1 Peter 4.10, we've all been given a gift from God. And we are to let that be manifested amongst ourselves for God's grace to be exposed through us. We're all supposed to be doing that. Now, what exactly does that look like in your life? You need to connect with God and set that bar. I just know what he calls me to be and do. And I have to admit, I do fail at it. I, I, I stumble sometimes. I'm not always what I need to be, where I need to be doing it, and how intensely I need to be about it. But I'm trying. My, my perspective, my goal is to be perfect. Now, not talking about perfectionism. I'm talking about maturity. To be what I'm supposed to be, where I'm supposed to be. It. That's supposed to be my motive. My MO. In love with God. Right? So that's what we're supposed to be. So we should never be about sleep. You know, when he's talking here about being sleepy and at night, again, he's talking about the metaphors of being indifferent and in, in being slothful. And doing it at night... Well, because night is in darkness, and night is a time when, you know, um, it's like a stupor. It's, it's a, a, a comatose. I'm shutting down. You know, it's, it's, it's where nobody really gets to see, and I don't have to be accountable. Jesus put it this way. Jesus did in John 3.19. This is the condemnation of man, that the light has come into the world, and man loved darkness rather than light because his deeds were evil. See, darkness, that idea of night, man loving it, that's a description of the world. It's not supposed to be a description of me. So is there a contrast in how I live and how I'm acting and how I'm, I'm awake, right? That's a, it's a sharp contrast, right? And again, he gives that sharp contrast in verse 8. That idea of self-control and control by the Spirit. Now, how, how do I make sure I'm doing that or what's an incentive for it or, the, or that uh, a, a provoker or an activator of that? Well, I should put on the breastplate of faith and love. Notice it's not the breastplate of righteousness, which is in Ephesians 6, part of the armor of God. This is the breastplate of faith and love. Now, again, a breastplate, that definition doesn't change in the Scripture which is something that covers my heart. My heart is supposed to be protected from this world and everything that's going on in it by the faith that I have because of God's word and what Paul's revealing to us and telling us, and we're teaching and revealing that now to us today, right? And the motive of love that's supposed to drive me to then activate it in my life and to be able to share it with those around me. So very important that I have this idea of this breastplate of 
faith, and love. And again, that's going to keep me acting, responding the way I should, because I believe what God has said. It's going to keep my actions right before him and put me in a place of having no charge against me because I'm going to be operating in a mode of love. That is agape love, by the way. It is the Holy Spirit fruit love. It is the love there is no law against. Right? So I'm good. I'm good with God and I'm good with man. He also tells me that I'm to put on that helmet, a covering of my head, right, of the hope of salvation. Now, John tells us in, um, in 1 John 3, 3, that all those that have this hope of Jesus Christ coming back at any second purify themselves even as he is pure. So again, that, another reason why I believe that Paul is exampling it, teaching it, and has always shown it throughout the scriptures God has, that if I believe Jesus is coming back at any second, I am keeping myself pure because at any second I'm standing before him. And how do I want to be standing? I want to be standing clothed in a robe of righteousness, not naked in the courtroom. So I want to make sure that my life and my actions are always what he'd have them to be. And having this helmet of hope of my salvation, I'm not hoping to identify the Antichrist. I'm not hoping to start to see that, that he implements these plans and I can go, oh, that's him, and we can start warning everybody. I don't have that hope. I have the hope that Jesus Christ comes before I finish this sermon while I'm going like this, because that'd be awesome, like just to be in front of him all of a sudden making my point, you know? That's what I'm hoping for, you know? It's like, it's like Fern. I didn't announcements. I did announcements. I forgot to let you know. So Fern, and those of you that know don't know, Fern is Jan's mom, my mother-in-law. She lived, lives with us, but she's 102, and she's over here at Genesis at the nursing home because she had a little fall and cracked her pelvis, and so she's healing right now. And she is getting stronger, so just to let you know, okay? So Fern's doing good. I saw her yesterday, and I'm going to go see her after church today. And she's, she's looking better. She's sounding better all the time, right? But Fern, is, she is wearing the hope of salvation, the helmet of hope. And that is that she hopes today she goes home. Now, if she doesn't go home today, then the second alternative is that she would come to my house. Get what I'm saying? Right? Fern's got one goal, and it ain't to get to my house. It's to get to her new heavenly mansion, that house that God has prepared for her to move into. And that's her hope. And second best will be she gets to come live with me again. You know, But I get that. But this is what Paul is saying we should all be having as our hope. Got to be walking in this, right? And, and it, it's going to totally make my life a different purpose. For God has not appointed us to wrath. Look at that. But to obtain salvation, verse 9, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we are supposed to be. And, and specifically, he points out there, who, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep or we die, this is not talking, this is not this, this is the same sleep that's up and those that had fallen asleep. That is not the same word for sleep that where he's talking about don't be sleepy as at night, like the world, right? Two different sleeps. But now, whether you're awake or you sleep, that you should live together with him. Comfort each other with these things. Amen. Because that's the truth of where we're going and, and how we're supposed to respond. We are, and, he, and he's going to point that out as we move on, we're spirits. We are souls. You know, Pastor Mike only talks about his airline experience and how even to this day, pilots, airline attendants, they don't talk about how many bodies are back in the, in, in the fuselage. They talk about how many souls are back there. We are souls that occupy these bodies, that occupy tents, fleshly little vessels made of earth that God put us in. But the key is that we would remember we are spirit beings that live in these. We are not this. And I'm somehow got to have an out-of-body experience to reach my euphoric new, you know, Irvana place or whatever, 
that's nirvana, not irvana. I don't know. But this is what we have to keep in mind, that we are and interwoven as spirit beings working together. That's why we're told in Hebrews not to forsake the gathering together and why we come together to learn this and to get this and to comfort one another and edify, build each other up. And they'd been doing that, but Paul, in the, in the verb tense there, it's like, make sure you keep on doing this because it's only going to get rougher, right? Now, as he concludes the book, he wants to give them practical application of what this is supposed to look like now as we deal with each other in these interrelational, you know, spirit lives that we live, right? And I urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So based on the truths that he's just revealed, so this is what we know, right? Jesus is coming back any second. Now for us, we have this absolute hope. You know this, you know this, right? You got this. Now the world, any second, destruction. They've made their choice, and they are going to suffer for it. Now, God's long-suffering, and he's going to still even deal with them through the tribulation period. We're not going to get into that because why? We're not going to be here. But until that moment happens, based on this truth that you now all know, this is how I want you to act, church. So he's telling the Thessalonians, right? That, that you urge the brethren to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you. Well, of course, he, he jumps back to church authority. Now, those that admonish you, the word admonish means those that instruct and warn you, right? And since we all know we're going to be standing before God at any second, this is how you should be acting. This is, this is how you should be, you know, I- interacting. Now, I'm sure that no one here has ever had a complaint about my personality, nor a criticism about Pastor Steve's teaching or Pastor Michael's leadership skills in a ministry. Sure, that's never happened, but obviously it was happening here. And Paul wants to say, make sure that you adjust all this and it should be what it is. You need to recognize those. It means to acknowledge them. And in fact, it comes from a root that means heed what they say. Esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work for you. They do have biblical, eternal like effect on you. So love them for the work that they're doing, that church leadership does. And it's talking across the board. It's neutral. It, 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 it's, a, it's a neutral statement. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean the men that are working hard or the women that are only working hard. It means both of them. It means everybody that's working to benefit the church and bring instruction and oversight to you. Man, esteem them highly in love. Respect what they're doing. Now, to make sure that they're doing that in a way that's respectable, watch what words come out of their mouth and what life follows behind it. Because that's the two that want to always line up, right? That you then can get behind and follow leadership wholeheartedly, right? The title's secondary. Because even Paul tells Timothy, it's like, look, don't raise a guy up until he's been proven. You know, recognize and then raise up. Then give a title to. Why? Well, just so we know what to call him. But... Don't just give somebody a title and, and then say, all right, that's the guy you have to make sure that you, know, you listen to. It's a guy that's been proven, right? Notice one of the characteristics, that they labor among you. Not a hierarchy of church authority and some system where they are removed, but one where they are one of us. They've come from us, they are one of us, and we are all going home together to heaven. This is how Paul and Pastor Steve pointed that out last week when Paul says, we are looking for this. 
We are waiting for Jesus. It's an inclusiveness, right? And so watch this. And and even adds there at the end of it, you know, and be at peace among, you know, be at peace among yourselves at the end of verse 13. And I think he adds that because nobody likes it when somebody at church gets in their business. Now, and I say that kind of jokingly, but when a church authority actually has to come to you and say, you know, you're doing this and scripture says you're not supposed to be. And so you really need to stop it. Now, some people receive that script, that, that warning. In fact, scripture tells us how wise you are if you do, but some people pick up their toys and just go to another sandbox. I'm not going to play with you anymore. Fine. And then of course, they're going to let everybody know on the new sandbox, what they don't like about the old sandbox. So then they get into gossip and division and strife causing. And God hates all that. But that's mankind. And that's why Paul is saying, don't act like that. Right? Be at peace amongst yourself. We now exhort you, brother. We're encouraging you, man. We're we're pushing you, in fact, to warn those who are unruly. Now, notice he says brethren. So he's not just talking about the pastors going to people. He's talking about you all, pastors, pastoral Ministry, brother in ministry, all having the oneness of the body of Christ, you all be looking out for one another. Now, again, not sin sniffing, but love exhorting one another, seeing a brother like it talks about in Galatians 6 1, who might be in trouble, and going to that person in gentleness to restore such a one, lest you also be tempted, it says. See, we're all supposed to be helping one another along this. And, and those that are unruly, those that are, you know, and unruly means outside of the, the march. Like the soldiers are marching and this is the guy that's drifting off. You know, when I was in marching band, checking those lines, you know, and everybody's got to move together because we're making some incredible picture on the field, you know, and I was the tuba. So usually I was the eyeball or something, you know, well, the eyeball better be in the right place. Or somebody's going to say, hey, the eyeball's in the right place. The Indian's looking skewed. Now, we were, we were the Indians, so that's why I just say that. It has nothing to do with my wife or anything. But anyway, it means get in an order, and we all should have that responsibility to go to the brothers that are disorderly, unruly. You know, Comfort the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted means um, little-spirited. It means those that are young in their faith don't really know what, you know, they, they've messed up again. They didn't know. Comfort them. Come alongside of them. You know, they're a little timid, shy in what they're doing. Or those that are weak, those that are stumbling, those that are, and the, the word literally means those that are like a wall leaning over. Shear them up. Come alongside of them, right? They need to be helped. They need to be boosted up. Watch that, you know, that you're patient with everybody. See that no one, no one renders evil for evil. You know what they did to me? Well, I'm going to do it right back to them. You know that eye for an eye thing? I like that. Please do remember that the eye for eye thing back in the Old Testament was a restraining command, not an allowance command. God wasn't like, you know, he took your eye. Go take his. God was like, he took your eye. Do not take more than his eye when you, you know. And that was just because that's how God was showing mankind's nature to himself, right? But the truth is, we're not supposed to be vengeful, evil for evil. In fact, God says, leave room for vengeance. It's mine, says the Lord. Now, do you believe that? That God is going to vindicate you in the right time and in the right way so you don't have to vindicate yourself? He will. His word promises us that. So give that room, right? Remember when David... um, Make this fast. In First Samuel, in, in chapter 26, when he had that opportunity to sneak into Saul's you know, camp, and you know, Abishai was like, kill him, kill, let me kill him. I'll, one blow, man, that's all it's going to take. Saul's gone, your enemy, man. And David's like, no, man, I'm not going to touch the, the Lord's anointed. You know? And he goes on at the end, in verse, in verse 10 of chapter 26, to say, this is David talking furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. It's like, look, I'm not going to touch him, but whatever God wants to do, God's going to do it. I'm good. Trust the Lord to be your, 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 your vindicator, right? 
and, and to, to take care of those things. Don't return evil. In fact, he also says, pursue what is good both for you and for everybody. We're actually to pursue. That word pursue, it means to press forward, to run as is the good race to win for everybody. I'm to be pursuing good for people. Not just like, well, he'll get his one day. All right. See in heaven. But no, actually pursuing after good. In fact, it's the same word when Paul says, all who desire to give God, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's the same word, persecution. Persecu- pursue, persecution. It's the same word. So in other words, it equates that I am actually to do good when it is hard for me, suffering for me, difficult for me. That's how I am supposed to be as a Christian when it comes to doing good. Rejoice always. Be cheerful, be calm, be happy, right? Now, he's not talking about rejoicing in the trial or the hardship because you got it. He's talking about rejoicing in the midst of it because God's got it. And all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We say it. We proclaim it. Some of us have it on plaques in our houses. Do you believe it? That's the the practical application that Paul is so pushing right here, right? Pray without ceasing. doesn't mean you're always on your knees. It means you always need to be in your spirit. I was at a pastor meeting this week. True story. And one of the pastors was talking about a guy that he meant to do a prayer walk with. You know, one of these guys. And they were going to do a prayer walk. And he was talking with the guy before the prayer walk. And the guy's like, so I need to ask you, like, how do we walk and pray with our eyes closed? Okay, so let me just say, religiosity and the practices that you were raised with when mom and dad were trying to get you to not slap your brother and sister at the dinner table during grace are not the same thing as you standing before the throne of God by the Spirit and being able to speak to him constantly. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's like, you need to be having a conversation with God all day long in prayer. That's what prayer is. It's conversation with God. You talk, but you also listen. And everything gets lifted before him. Then, as you acknowledge him, he will direct your paths. This is what he's always said, right? And you should be doing it with thankfulness, always. Again, because that keeps right thinking. I don't deserve any of this, but Lord, wow. What you've done and what you're giving, thank you so much. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't extinguish. Don't stifle what the Spirit wants to do. How can you do that? Well, you can do it by fear. You can do it by doubt. You can do it by distraction. You can do it by indifference, by sleeping. You've been gifted. You've been called. Now, I'm called here, and this is what I do here because God's called me here behind this pulpit on a Sunday or a Wednesday. It is this past What are you called to do? Where are you called to do it? It's between you and God, but I know you're called because the scripture tells me. You got no less calling or responsibility on your life than I do. It's just I get to be a mouthpiece and have a little microphone on me on a couple times a week maybe, and and you don't. Maybe you do. Are you moving towards it, right? Don't quench the spirit, right? And also, don't despise prophecy. Man, Ephesians 4 says it's one of the gifts God gave to the church. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about it being, or 14 talks about it being one of the gifts that actually proves God in our midst is because something comes across this pulpit, and prayerfully, you've heard it today, and you go, well, that was for me. I was just thinking that. I was just asking that. Whoa, how did that guy know what was going on in my life? Whoa, 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 who is he to tell me? That's God, buddy. Don't despise it. Receive it and move accordingly, right? Don't despise those things. And again, prophecy isn't so much foretelling the future anymore like it was in the Old Testament days when God was establishing what he would do. It's now more forthtelling. I get to read the word and the word is alive and it hits you right where it needs to. And you know that God is teaching you. He's exhorting you. He's comforting you. 
It's one of those things that we are told in prophecy that that is what prophecies for. You know, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, prophecy, it has three purposes. It edifies, it exhorts, or it comforts. To edify is to build you up. To exhort you is to um, push you up or push you out, encourage you. And to comfort is to settle you down. That's what prophecy is for. So I'm not going to come at you and say, thus saith the Lord and rebuke you, because that's not what prophecy is for. But it is to exhort you and push you and also to comfort you, right? And we're supposed to be walking in those truths. Absolute. Do not despise them. But when you hear God talking to you, because he does know your address, listen. Abstain from every form of evil. I love the way that King James writes this verse, which is abstain from all appearance of evil. It means as a believer, my life is to be very concerned. I, I am to be very concerned with my life that it not in any way appear that I'm doing evil. So I am to be a witness to my neighbors and how I go and come from my house, how I act in my house, how I take care of my house, in my community, in my work, outside of my church. Everywhere I go, I am to be appearing to be walking in the Spirit, walking with God. Now, I don't say appearing in in a sense of hypocrisy or falseness. I mean, that's what's supposed to be my MO. And in every way, if something could look wrong, I shouldn't do it. That's why we have rules about girls and guys driving off in cars together. Why? Well, we got a lot of young people that work for Pottersfield that go to this church that are part of the ministry, and we don't want the neighbors to go, man, a lot of, a lot of chicks and dudes driving off together, hey, coming and going late at night. I mean, who knows what's going on over that place? I don't know. what. Yep. Easily done if we don't guard ourselves against it. Right? So we do. We all need to be doing this, right? Because we don't want to stumble a brother or sister. Man, Paul even said, if, 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 you're, eating, if you're going to eat meat around a vegetarian who's committed that way because of their faith in God being so weak, don't stumble them by you practicing a liberty that you are so strong in. That's how Paul put it down in Romans. So watch it. All right, let's close out and go to communion because, man, he finishes with this blessing of a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify that set apart you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body. See, there's the true order of who we are. We are spirit who have souls. Souls are our emotions, our personalities, the the individualities that we are, right? That also then live in these earthen tents, these bodies. That's, and Paul writes it down just right. That's how we should look at it. We're spirit, soul, and body. Be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants all three in right standing. He wants your spirit sanctified and set apart and, self, and righteous in his righteousness. He wants your body to be what it can be for his glorification, his temple to be living in and exampling. But he also wants your soul, your personality, your fears, your doubts, your all coming out for his glory. To be blameless at his coming. Blameless means no charge can be brought against you. It's like there, nobody can even say, well, you know, this one time I did see Steve. No. Blameless. He who calls you is faithful who will also do it. And there's really the, a, a hope of why we come to communion today. This is... is He's faithful to do it. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive them and to remove the unrighteousness from you. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. This wasn't, a, this wasn't like to Philemon. Like, let me just tell you this, guys, what's going on right here. Just keep it amongst yourself. No, this is one he wants read before the church that we'd all get this, right? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. He began this epistle with grace. He ends it with grace because grace is what we all need. It is what we get from God to be able to do all for God. It all comes down to his grace. 
And as the worship team comes up and we go to the communion table today to celebrate and remember that, take these words that he's just charged us with through the word of God to say, this is how you're supposed to be moving. And if you've been convicted, if you've heard prophetic utterance from God through his spirit to your heart, then confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive it, to remove it from you. And you find yourself absolutely cleansed. Once again, a son or daughter in complete light. You weren't cast out into darkness, but you've been brought now back into the fullness of what Jesus Christ has provided for us through his death and sacrifice. And that's all he's asking for you to do when you take this. Do it respectfully. Give worth to a piece of cracker that represents, reminds us of the body that Jesus gave to suffer for us that we would never have to, and the blood that he shed and took the wrath of God upon himself for you and I, and then rose again because his blood in its purity couldn't be held down by sin and the weight of us. Because he was pure. And he offers that to us today, to you. And if you've never received him as Lord and Savior, then as the worship team plays, take this now as your moment. That God is wanting you to confess your sins to him and to receive by grace through faith in what his son has done, eternal life. And it's represented right here on this table. Take that moment. Do it. And then you will find a life transformation and a hope of salvation that is assured. Not, man, I hope so. I'm, uh, you hope it's today that he's coming because you know you have right standing with him. Amen?